You are listening to the Antler VC Cast. We are your hosts. I am Yusti Salavara and I'm the co-founder and managing partner of Antler. I am Pooja Barwani, the marketing director of Antler. In this series, we feature stories of exceptional people who are playing a key role in building and shaping the next wave of tech and the way it is integrated into all we do. We take a look at the transformation that is taking place in an increasingly global and digital world. We will talk about innovation, building and scaling startups, mistakes they made, pivots they navigated through and lots more. We want to know their story, how they did it, the challenges they faced and how they overcame them. Stay tuned. Today we are recording the first show of 2021 and we have with us Sten Tamkiwi. Sten started his entrepreneurial journey when he was just 18 by creating Estonia's first digital media agency back in 1996. He was an executive with Skype and was with them for over eight years in various product roles, including being their general manager. He was part of their rapid growth, which reached 300 million active users. They also had a whopping $8.5 billion exit to Microsoft. He then became an entrepreneur in residence at Andresin Horowitz, where he co-founded Teleport, which was later acquired by Topia. He's currently the chief product officer at Topia, where he builds products to help people and companies work everywhere. Sten is speaking to us today from Tallinn, Estonia. Welcome to the Antler VC cast, Sten, and thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Happy New Year, and thanks for having me. Awesome. Uh, Sten, great to have you with us. So you're now, uh, right now in Tallinn. I am. I really admire um, Estonia's startup ecosystem. What's it like? The highest unicorn per capita ratio in the world? It's it's pretty exciting, and it's uh, it's as one of my American friends says that uh, when anything is per capita, Estonia always wins. So so so, <laughs> so uh, we just yeah. produced our unicorn number five, and for a country of one point two one point two million people. Uh, we these days we have about a thousand startup teams. Uh, so there is both these sort of unicorns at the top of the pyramid, but there is also like a very broad base of teams starting and and trying and building something. So so that's uh, I think why why we see success at the top as well. Yeah, I, I always think that um, success breeds success. There's nothing like very early success cases that you know build other success cases. And and Skype was truly a phenomenal thing. What was it? Uh, two years into a uh, 2.6 billion USD acquisition, would you agree that that had a big, big hand in, in you know building the ecosystem to where it is? Yeah, absolutely. This sort of wheel spinning from one project to another and success breeding success is exactly what Silicon Valley was built on over the last 40 years. But you also see that very consistently, this is what Nokia created in Finland, if you look at the wave of gaming startups. This is what Ericsson and post-Ericsson, so the Spotify's and, and later unicorns in Sweden have created. And Estonia definitely has been following uh, uh, in the footsteps of Skype. So uh, if I remember correctly, a year after the Skype acquisition, uh, the total n- amount of uh, capital invested in Estonian startups in 2006 was $6 million. And now we are raking in consistent 350, 400 million a year going into tech. So the sort of last 14, 15 years really has created a consistent industry uh, after these first few examples. 
And what do you what do you think is unique about Estonia that enables such small population to be able to innovate? You know, there's there's obviously great government support. It's very digitized, but what is distinctly different about the ecosystem in Estonia? Well, I think there was a number of things. Uh, there was for 50 years we were we were occupied by Soviet Union. And uh, and that uh, with all the bad things it gave us, it also that was the era where it was very sort of popular and sensible to focus on things like real sciences and study math and physics and whatnot. So there is a very strong educational foundation that's to date. I think if you look at the rankings, Singapore, Estonia, and Finland are consistently on top of the world uh, when when you talk about kids learning math. Um, and but on that foundation, we also I think this. Once we became re-independent in early 90s, uh, this proximity to Finland and the Nordics and access to sort of what the Western world looks like and does, where you were rapidly helped. Uh, I actually think the small size is a benefit. Uh, like uh, it's it's a little bit counterintuitive for people coming from larger countries. But if you come from a country of a million people, anything you do, you have to worry about, okay, how do we get this huge thing done with thing done with free people. How can I start this business with no resources or no capital and so forth? And so so the scarcity and uh, I think of it in the in the terms of the ratio of man hours put in or woman hours uh, converted into uh, the value created for the world. Uh, I think that ratio has been extremely high here all the time. Uh, and that's a very startup mindset. How do you do more with less, right? And um You've, you've obviously been uh, in a sort of crucial place with a helicopter view, looking at the development of the ecosystem. I believe you've been involved with at least three of the five unicorns. But you've also been advising the government. You were a special advisor to uh, one of the former presidents, uh, Mr. Ilbes. And uh, I, like, how would you see the development of the ecosystem and what could other governments learn? Um, and other ecosystems learn from from what's happened in Estonia. Yeah, we're at this weird moment right now where for the last two years, it's the first time in history where Estonian tech scene has to fight the government. <laughs> we've, we've been extremely lucky from 90s and 2000s that we've had a, a government series of governments from all kinds of political views who have been agreeing that digitalization is necessary. In a tiny country, you need to be efficient and you have to build a digital, digital society in order to be able to maintain a small society. And uh, and uh, there has been a lot of emphasis on creating a very friendly business environment. And right now we're going in a flux where we, we do have sort of right-wing po- populists in government who are talking about sort of keeping foreign talent out. I think that the grave danger to a open small society as Estonia is. But uh, I think that phase will pass as well. And if, for example, Estonian sort of security policy has always been laid on on the foundation the, like, that uh, that we never want to be alone again. And and if a tiny country remains alone, then it has all kinds of threats at it. Because of that, Estonia has been super integrated with anything in sort of in the world from United Nations to European Union to Eurozone to NATO and every other organization where we can par- be part of the club and collaborate with the world. And I think that has uh, sort of carried over to the private sector as well. Like when young Estonian entrepreneurs grow up, uh, they don't think about, okay, how can we expand our business to Latvia uh, or or Finland? But they think about, okay, how do I get to my 100 million users? How do I get to my billion customers? Uh, And coming from a nation of a million, that always means that you need to 
build something that the world needs. And given that this that Estonia has been known to be a nation that is, you know, digital, the government had digitized many parts um, earlier on. Did you feel that their handling of the pandemic, um, that way they were better prepared for it? What was 2020 like uh, for Estonians? Um, yes and no. I think uh, nobody really in the world was prepared for the pandemic. It was a matter of like, do you get do you understand what's going on in January or March? Uh, but generally everybody was caught by a surprise. So, so we've had our ups and downs about so the management of the disease in particular. Where I think we've been pretty good, uh, is sort of the ability to continue normal operations while people stay at home. So we've had digital signatures in the law since 2001, I believe. So if you have like, basically uh, 15 years of practice, not having to sign a contract or go to a bank or go to a doctor to sign things or get prescriptions and all these other th things that normally people think require your physical presence. Um, and a large share of the population is also doing knowledge-related jobs where, where they can continue at home. So, um, yeah, I think there, and there are some things that have really definitely seen a boost. Like I think I think our e-commerce infrastructure has improved massively over the last year, and and some things uh, that uh, uh, I think we were lagging behind because of the small country buying food online wasn't the thing I think a year ago as it is now. For example, <laughs> yeah, okay, but um, enough about Estonia. Let's hear a bit more about Mr. Sten Tampivi. So. Uh, why don't you tell us and the audience a bit about your uh, personal story and, and background? What what have the sort of main milestones been, and what would you like to highlight? Yeah, I think Puja already covered the the ancient history and uh, the Skype years and before then. But but maybe to to talk a little bit about what I've been active on since is that um, coming out of Skype, I had this luxury of taking some time out doing a degree uh, in business school and spending my year at Andreessen Horowitz and really think about where do I want to put my next decade. Uh, and and I, as an entrepreneur, I really think that you need to uh, set like longer term milestones and goals because great companies can't be built in two weeks. Um, and I, I landed on this area which where I feel my my real uh, focus has been now is how to build this sort of more open and borderless world and how to create the world where people can be more conscious about where they want to live and work and figure it out for themselves and get to the best place for them and their their business and their family and all the other things around them. Um, so that's why we started a company called Teleport where we're building for, for this uh, specific use case of Given who you are, what do you want to do, where should you live? And we built a search engine uh, around that, and uh, we built Teleport in a in a very distributed fashion. And and I've been extremely passionate about building distributed and remote teams, uh, making coherent culture work in distributed organizations, uh, hiring globally, getting the best people in the world to work for you, and and all related fields. So so I, I've been investing in sort of this future work, distributed work uh, themes on the side as well, uh, what we haven't been directly building for at Teleport and Nautopia. And, uh, and I think that's one domain where, where whatever we started talking about in 2014, 
sounded a little bit obscure and futuristic, and and it couldn't be more mainstream after the pandemic. Exactly, <laughs> so, we're all so we're all the future of work has arrived. Uh, w- you know, way before anyone expected. When I was reading about your what you're doing, and especially when I, I saw your Twitter account that said, you know, I help free people move and make governments compete for every citizen. I I I really like that, and you know, it. it I want to know, like, in terms of you know, your, uh, how has the whole concept and idea, uh, changed, if at all, since this past year? Or have you had to like accelerate it even more? Uh, except now, you know, we have other restrictions for movement in place. So, so wh- what is, uh, what is it like now, the concept, uh, to adapt to this new world that has arrived, uh, a lot earlier than we all expected? Like, if you, if you start looking at first principles, why this topic matters, then, um, my co-founder Silver uh, made some calculations many years ago uh, where if you take a list of sort of the the uh, Western democratic values or like uh, what we would what would the societies look like that we would want to be us on the call would want to be born in so you want to have uh, equal rights you want to have lack of uh, military conflict, you want to have uh, religious freedom, you want to have uh, women's uh, freedom to decide over their bodies. Like you, There's a sequence of things that you would consider a modern internet uh, worker would, would think that are given. But if you run the calculations and you add all of those probabilities together, the probability of a baby born today, being born in society where all these things are true, uh, is about 3%. So with a 97% probability, there is something in an environment that you were born in uh, that you don't like or doesn't match your needs and interests on the very basic human level uh, or your values level. Uh, and and if you start adding things like your special talents or your professional desires or whatever, the probability that you just through this cosmic lottery of where were you born, that you're in the perfect place for yourself, it's very, very low. And uh, so, so we started thinking, how can we, it's basically a matter of how do you, how do you sort of uh, increase the chance that the human gets most out of the potential during the lifetime? And, uh, and if somebody is born in the middle of sub-Saharan Africa and happens to be great at math, like how do you get that person to Oxford or Cambridge? Or if somebody is a, a really strong bio researcher who has this entrepreneurial knack like how do you help that person find san diego is the startup hub for them and so forth and so forth um and i don't think that desire has gone anywhere and uh, what uh, what uh, layers on top of it or sometimes even precedes that is the pure economic formula like if you look at the total amount of money you spend in your lifetime uh about 60 percent, 70 percent of that goes into two things which is your residence and taxes. So the fastest way to change your quality of life or your economic status in society is either you can double your income or you can move to a place where you reduce your cost. And that sort of people flocking to places where they can make more money on what their skills and knowledge and uh, talents are is one trend. And people flocking to sort of better cost-optimized locations where they have uh, better access to healthcare and schools and all these other things for a fair cost uh, is another thing. And that's what that's what comes back to these governments competing to citizens. I think every single government in this day and age where people can move around, they can uh, figure out what are the 
pluses and minuses are different environments in the world from their perspective they will move faster than ever before all governments are in competition for talent and the only difference is do they realize that or not and now so the coming back to the pandemic i think the the other aspect there is that uh, uh in this past 12 months where we've been living in a very active set of constraints on movement uh as a business helping to serve uh, the, those sort of people finding their places and moving around. Uh, it's ever more, the more restrictions you have, the more help you need. So so the industry around helping people figure out remote and distributed work and movement is just booming because of helping people in a more complex environment. So where are we on that journey? Do you think we're still very early in that development and this is just going to accelerate and accelerate going forward. So the number is that about a quarter of a billion, 220 million people in the world live in a country other than the one they were born in. And so that is the migration statistic. Uh, but there are a few things wrong with that one or, or lacking with that one because it's United Nations sampled like every 10 years. It only considers full residency changes when you go to another country and you become a citizen or a resident of that and so forth. Uh, the lifestyle we're seeing much more is a, is a much more grayscale one. Like there are people who, uh, who's, where they live has nothing to do with what work they do. Uh, they, the, we see young people who, instead of moving from A to B, say that I spend my year in the following places. So instead of a one home, you manage a portfolio. Hey, I want to live in Finland for the beautiful winter. I can go skiing. And then in the fall, I will go to the Caribbean for a month. And then I want to see my Singapore friends. And then uh, I have business in US twice a year. And so the, how do you spend your time uh, around that? And that's kind of like this um, high-end, high-income sort of behavior that where they started first, but it is expanding. Like you, you see students in their graduate studies uh, figuring out how they do their academic exchanges between countries and so forth. From that few hundred million, I think there are about one point five billion. There are about three point five billion jobs in the world, working people in the world, and about half of them are are dealing with information, not physical objects. So any job that deals with creation or movement of bits instead of atoms is susceptible to being sort of detached from your location. And that means that between the, the right answer or the current answer of people who are moving between that few hundred million living abroad to this 1.5, 1.7 billion who can technically move around, I think that gap is closing. Um, and uh, by the way, for many people, if you do the analysis, you might realize that you're, you are at your right place. So it's, it's not like I, I, I'm not sort of preaching a world where everybody has to move. Uh, I'm, I'm rather convinced that people will make more conscious decisions. And when they decide to live there, it's for a good reason. Um, I think we've all definitely thought a lot of, about, you know, the whole working environment this past year and whether we're implementing hybrid or more uh, more physical. One of the big questions that people are asking as the economy is reopening, uh, you know, and the world is reopening is what is the place of the office? And, you know, at the end of the day, the physical relationship that you make through work, uh, you know, for cultural solidarity and and building that that corporate culture uh, and and relationships with your colleagues, you do need an office. I mean, where do you see the place of the office fit in in this new world? I don't think you need an office. I think you need to break that down to smaller components. 
what you definitely need is FaceTime and inter- uh, like congregation. Uh, but there are different ways how you can achieve that. And in some cases, the answer might be office, uh, especially if you're do- offering, I don't know, massage services or <laughs> like, like there is a probability that you need a physical location. But uh, in other, other sort of organizations, there's this... Uh, one of my sort of principles for managing remote teams is is one that I, I believe was coined by Lulabot, which was a, a team uh, working on open source projects. And a lot of this distributed work uh, mechanisms, like people should look at the open source movements uh, more because many of those things have been invented when building Linux and uh, and uh, other open source platforms over the years with hundreds of people who have never met each other, right? And uh, and uh, one of the principles is that you need three things when building a distributed team. Uh, you basically need to hire people that uh, uh, can write well um, or write liberally. Secondly, meet frequently. And third is congregate occasionally. And writing matters because we do so much more work in asynchronous ways, especially across time zones. Uh, the, if you write concise and funny and uh, and clear, you are a better team member and people find it easier to interact with you. Meet frequently is something we've now been able to change with technology. So going from physical meetings to video calls, like that's the bucket where you where you can replace by different communication uh, modi, uh, but it's uh, it's it's not perfect. Like VR is not there yet at the level where you would hang out in virtual sort of metaverses for eight hours a day in productive ways. Uh, and this congregate occasionally means that you see many 10, 20, 500 person distributed teams who have this rhythm of bringing everybody together or bringing new team members together twice a year, once a year physically. And that's the sort of habit that has been a little bit disrupted. Um, um, and, uh, and I think will, will, is, is a crucial component. Like uh, since the Skype days, I believe that it's uh, possible to build human relationships face to face and maintain them via video calls, but the opposite is really hard, uh, and it takes us a few more technological cycles to get there. And at uh, Topia, we 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 at Topia we serve sort of Fortune 500 uh, type of large organizations, tens and hundreds of thousands of employees who are scattered all over the world. Like even before remote work, like a Fortune 100 would have a 50 or 200 offices around the world, right? So, so we build software to help them figure out where their people are, where they should be, how do they get to where they need to be, and all the sort of questions that come with managing distributed workforces. And, uh, and it, there is another layer of complexity when you are an enterprise, which has nothing to do with offices, but your people's physical locations might create legal presence or tax presence for you and, and sort of things that you need to account for when you send if you're a big consulting company, you send four people to a customer site. Like, do you trigger some regulation somewhere? Uh, and uh, and that thing is usually attached to people's physical location rather than if you have an office there or not. So, Atopia, when the pandemic started, we we sent San Francisco, London, New York home, and we still keep an office in Seattle and Tallinn. Uh, basically because the, the nature of the R&D teams in those locations and the sort of pandemic-related regulations and the number of things that influence that. But even in a sort of a team of 150, 170 people that we are now, uh, we, we made sort of more nuanced uh, decisions around offices rather than a blank, do you need one or not? It's interesting how you went from 
I, I like, I think the vision of, um, you know, teleport and how, you know, became part of, uh, Topia and what you're describing is very sort of futuristic visionary starts from the individual rights. And then you go to like tax planning for enterprises. That's, but, uh, that's where the money is, man. Yeah. So it's a practice. Exactly. Exactly. But, uh, it's very interesting how big the cultural differences here are. So my, like my personal work history is on one hand in Europe and on the other hand in, in Asia and the difference in terms of, for example, uh, the role of face-to-face stuff outside the office is stark. I remember I was meeting this guy in, in Europe um, recently for the first time. We met at his office. We had a very good connection. Like we, we had you know, mutual friends and all that. And at the end of that meeting, this was the first time I met him, I was like, you know, this was good. Like we should go for drinks sometime. And this guy is like maybe 40, have young kids. He looked at me like I had, I don't know, proposed going to the zoo or something. It was like, it was like I had sort of already like entered the Asian mindset that, uh, you know, then you next, you meet at the office, maybe next meetings for drinks, whatever. And, you know, you don't do that in, in, at least in the Nordics that early. You need uh, at least 10 days before that. But, um, but sort of these things vary between regions quite a bit. Yeah. And, and I just have to add to what you said. I mean, I have lived in this part of the world most of my life and, and I come from a communications background. So PR and all this stuff is very relationship driven, physical relationship driven. And if you, yes, we, we've moved from the gin soaked lunches, uh, period, Don Draper style, but you still need to meet the journalist and, and regularly like, you know, feed. So, so, you know, there are some, some habits that, obviously will will not change um but i want to before we go into your your skype story you know you were talking about people and skills that you know you look for um i want to just ask you what what do you think is the one skill that that you cannot be taught that you that each anyone you hire must have i think skills can fundamentally all be taught so maybe it's a definition gets into a gray area uh, but there are some sort of personal characteristics. If if somebody is consistently dishonest, <laughs> then it's kind of pointless to tell, give, teach them great skills. Right? So so I think it's more about finding the value click and a a a, a coherence with the values of the team and sort of core fundamental values of you as a founder or a leader of an organization rather than than sort of hunting for a particular skill. Uh, usually, like there's this old adage that people get hired for for the uh, functional skills and they usually get fired for some value conflict. And and I've seen that repeat over and over again. So it's it's for me, it's usually more important to have the, sort of this baseline belief that that person can hit the ground running and do the job that we're hiring them for, or preferably be more senior than the job actually requires so that they can scale with the organization. But it's more important to get the values right first. So integrity and values over over, over the skill per se. Are there, because testing for values as part of any recruiting decision is very difficult. Any There's a lot of people listening, I'm sure, who, who, would, who would be looked to hire. So would you have any tips or recommendations on how you kind of can embody the values or communicate the values and also test for the fit as part of a recruiting process and decision? Basically, like as you know, many companies try to capture their values. 
And at, at some scale, like in the beginning, when you have founders and three other people, then, then it's pretty easy to be on the same page. If you have 100 people, then it probably makes sense to write them down in some form. Uh, I think the most common mistake is that you write them down and leave them at it. Like there's a poster on the wall now, it's done. I think the real trick is how do you embed the same things that you wrote down in the everyday operations of the business? And that includes hiring. So when we use Greenhouse for hiring and we have five values that we've written down at Topia, like if there's a value called be a global citizen, uh, then on the Greenhouse form where every person after an interview needs to take notes, there are explicitly these five values written down and you need to sort of check off, like, do you think that person follows or not? And bring an example and write a comment about it. So there is a very tactical, there is this sort of high level values that the CEO can talk about. And there's a very tactical implementation. How do you address that in, in, uh, in the hiring process or when you have, uh, a person going through five interviews uh, and they're functional and teammates and hiring manager and all these things, then you pull somebody completely random out of the org and make it the values interview. So there's a person who doesn't know anything about the functional job that they're going to be doing, but only will talk about like what does it mean to be part of this company and and uh, see how that relates to the person's life experiences before. Uh, and also the flip side of it, uh, I, like values only really start living in an organization once you fire the first person and tell the organization that was for the violation of that value. Uh, before that, it's kind of like mushy. Uh, and also we have uh, a certain share of our annual bonuses are tied to meeting the company values. Because if you have to pay money for somebody, it's impossible that the manager doesn't explain to the person why it, why it went this way or that way. So, so you can sort of embed these little hooks throughout your normal management processes to, to sort of really have that conversation going all the time. A lot to take away there um, for our listeners, for sure. So, you know, given that you've been in product building role, especially with Skype and most of your life, you are product, chief product officer, what is your what is Sten's product building model? How how should uh, product builders think about building from the early stages and you know go with the development as they as they build their products and the company's scale? I am a huge fan of uh, small self contained product teams. Um, basically, a startup is one, and at Skype at peak we had probably by the time I left we probably had twenty five twenty seven of them. Uh, so, so it's basically the model is that you you standardize on on the roles that you need at minimum to maintain something as a product. And there's a massive difference between a project and a product, which people you very often get confused. So, project being something that takes from A to B with a limited number of resources and then ships and it's done, and product being something that you iterate on over the years and you capture user feedback and live data and sort of you keep improving incrementally. Um, and so, so in my sort of typical model, it's a product manager, a tech or an engineering lead, uh, a few engineers, but not too many, uh, maybe three or five, and then maybe a few domain specific roles, maybe a designer, if it's a very sort of user uh, interface heavy, uh, project, uh, product, uh, or maybe some domain experts. If you're building a tax engine, you might want to have a tax analyst on the team <laughs> and so forth. Uh, 
And then uh, scaling a product organization becomes a, a decision not to do I hire two engineers, but do I boot up a new product team? Because you recognize that all these roles are necessary and, and you can't just write code or you can't just design UIs. You need to sort of put them somehow together. And the product manager is somebody who needs to shepherd the uh, hard task of prioritization. Is the philosophy around that like the same in like very early stage than when you move to having a few product teams than when you have like 27 product teams like you like you said you had at Skype at the peak? I think there was a gradient where in very early you, you start with a vision and you have a much stronger point of view about many things uh, for the simple reason you have no users, you have no data. And the more you grow, the more world shifts towards it doesn't matter what you think. It matters like what you see actually working and what you hear from the customers that is working and so forth. Uh, it's been massively different also between building Skype and now building Topia because at Skype we had, uh, as Pooja mentioned, we had 300 monthly active users uh, when I was there. So you can basically launch a feature in the morning and and have data by the evening, like it, if it has any chance of success or whatnot. At uh, Topia, we might serve, if we serve like 60 or 80 really, really large enterprise customers, we touch tens of thousands of employees with our services, but we might have a few hundred users a week because there's sort of the surface area of people who are heavily using Topia tools daily. There might be mobility professionals in the HR department, which means again that your sort of mindset changes. Instead of sort of throwing a feature out and seeing how many million people click, <laughs> all of a sudden you would, as a product manager, you would need to call free active users and talk to them about it. And so so methods change, but, but I think at some very core uh, at atomic level, uh, the the composition and functions of the team is kind of similar. Right. So right. So when you have like low frequency of use, then you just need to have more user dialogue, like literally manually. Uh, probably the best. And also, also building a product that you yourself use is very different dynamic. So so building Skype while using Skype, like you know everything that sucks about the product. Uh, if you're building for a user persona that is not you, you need to be much more conscious about getting that insight. I don't think we really covered this, but like, what inspired you to go down the line of Teleportopia? Like, get get really excited about this vision. Like, you talked a bit about like, you know, what the problem and what the solution is, but like, what made you passionate about this? Personal experience. Um, when I was at Skype, two things happened. So I'm Estonian, born and raised in Estonia, but I was an exchange student early on. I, I lived in the U.S. when I was in high school for a year. Uh, so right after the Soviet Union collapsed, so it was a pretty big shift. Um, uh, but uh, while I was at Skype, by the time we had 200 people, we had 10 locations in the middle of 2000s. And we had this tool that allowed us to talk for free, so we did. <laughs> and, and we kind of kind of developed into that org subconsciously. We didn't consciously plan to have ten offices or ten locations with a team and every. So that created an environment where every single manager at Skype every week had to figure out: okay, do I hire this person here or there, or do I put that team in Luxembourg or Stockholm, or or should we expand beyond Tallinn because we're exhausting the talent pool here and so forth? Uh, and secondly, I started moving myself and my family around. Uh, so. 
So I lived in Tallinn, Singapore, London, Palo Alto. Um, and every time you make a move, especially with kids, I've seen firsthand the, all the unnecessary friction around paperwork and where do you live and where do you put them to school and how do you figure out healthcare and all these things, especially if you're doing it for yourself or in an early stage company, because all the help you can get is called corporate relocation and is more focused on the larger enterprises. So ironically, this is where we've ended up with Topia because large enterprises move 5% of the people in the world uh, of all the mobile people, but they pay 95% of the money for those moves. So so that's a sort of a shift in the industry that is still very much tilted towards large enterprises. Uh, but in general, the pain is with the rest of the 95 people trying to move themselves. Follow, follow the money. Are you, by the way, seeing these large enterprises move more and more towards the, the direction of super flexible workforce from a geographical point of view, because it's a very like startup heavy notion in my mind, at least you, you see startups doing a lot of that. They've always been in that direction. It's just like somehow people, somehow, somehow we've trained ourselves to think that it's a noble, noble startup thing. But if you think of the, uh, if you think of the big four consulting firms, if you think of the Wall Street banks, they've always sent their New York bankers to Hong Kong for two years. Uh, like they, if you look at big industrials in the world, they always send the team to open up a factory. Like they, they send people to customer sites. They manage the supply chain. Like, like there are all these things that happen super globally for tens of years already, but we don't think of it as distributed work or remote work, but it is like when you are on the move, like, of course you need to read your email. Of course you need to stay in touch with the team and sort of figure out these things. And by the way, large enterprises with much crappier software infrastructure, like uh, like that's what startups have reinvented is that what's the stack that you you have to work. And so Atopia, uh, like we're definitely seeing there are organizations where you have 100,000 people and two or 4% of your people are always abroad and 40, 50% are on a business trip a year. And so... Uh, what has changed definitely is that when 10 years ago, two decades ago, going abroad was viewed as a hardship. And in some industries, oil and gas, it still might be like you're going on a oil rig somewhere in a weird place and it is hardship. But, uh, but in, uh, in, let's say in banking 20 years ago, maybe somebody was sent to Hong Kong or Singapore from East Coast US and it was viewed as hardship. They had great pay there. Uh, kids were put to private school, their dog and sports cars were shipped and they got millions of dollars spent on their move because it was so hard to spend two years in Asia. Now it's flipped. Uh, like you cannot hire young talent if you don't allow them to be where they want to be. So it's all of a sudden companies are much more reactive. Like you have a great software developer who says that, yep, I might join you, but I want to spend two months a year in Barcelona, deal with it. And I don't want extra pay. It's not hardship. That's my life. And you still need to figure out the tax and regulation and communication and everything around that. Yeah, maybe it's this like two months in Barcelona model that I, I haven't seen. I remember I managed a global organization in a, in a global tech company and maybe like, you know, people in, in 20-ish locations. But it was always a bit like they were in their own silos and then they were all working in their country. It's... um. It's it's a slightly different thing in my head, but you're right. It's uh, it is there, and then there's just some barriers to to break. 
So Stan, I'm going to move to the next topic, which is investing. We looked at your portfolio of companies. You uh, also invest in, um, you're big into software. There's some uh, deep tech, AI, uh, quite a, quite a, good variety of companies in tech. Um, you know, what do you look for in a company uh, or in the founders before making an, in, a decision to invest? Very early stage investment is all about the team and the founders. Like you have really no numbers to look at yet. <laughs> so so, so that that is uh, everything there. I think over the last sort of five or six years, I found it extremely liberating to narrow down my investment thesis to what I'm actually working on, this entire open world and, and future work theme, uh, when you can simplify your decisions um, by, okay, there is this idea coming in. Okay, would we want to build that? Do I, a, do I want to have this thing exist in the world? A, yes or no? Secondly, would I want to build that Intopia or... Uh, or uh, or is that a, like an adjacency that should exist next to it? And then you sort of, okay, this thing actually fits my thesis and you make a decision, do I want to put time in it or money in it? And and it's sort of flipping the model uh, around. And then occasionally there are things that are outside of that where I invest just because of the team. Either it's old Skype network or, or people that I love and respect and want to work with and I've seen them perform well in other areas. So it's becoming increasingly rare that I invest in people I don't know outside of my thesis. And that, that has been extremely simplifying. And then there is like later stage investments, which are super different by assessment. Like when you, when you go into a unicorn, when they already at the $500 million valuation, then you, you have a lot more material to, to dig through. Um, and then there are some super nascent technological fields that just get me excited. Like I'm, over this last year, I've been reinvigorated by what's happening in crypto and decentralized finance, for example. You did mention crypto, and that is part of something that I do want to ask you. So time for rapid fire. I'm going to start with that. Basically, crypto or cash, you know, this whole decentralized currency, it's a big thing now. Um, it's, as we know, Bitcoin is is doing phenomenally well. So what's your take? The fact that 25, 30% of all US dollars that have ever existed in history were printed last year. Means that I don't think that Bitcoin is rising, but the dollars and euros are falling in the, in the sort of next three to five years. So I'm, I've been in crypto since 2013, uh, and occasionally very passive holder and occasionally like last year, like really getting excited about what applications are built, but just like, I, I have pulled aggressively out of public stock markets and aggressively more towards crypto. Crypto tends to grow in the size of portfolio anyways. <laughs> What's one app you can't do without? I think Rome, Rome Research is becoming it. Especially when I'm on paternity leave and I, I occasionally jump on a call, occasionally listen to an audiobook while walking with a baby, occasionally sort of think about some crypto idea or talk to a startup and take notes on their pitch deck, like it all tends to go into Rome these days. So I think if not now, in a year, it's going to be inevitable. <laughs> like that's the number one. Your worst mistake in life? I've had many mistakes, but uh, I don't really, like I, my first company went belly up and I've made mistakes in personal life and made my family occasionally unhappy and all these things. But like, I don't really obsess about the past. I'm more about the future. So you learn from your mistakes, no? 
No, no regrets as such. I, I try, but I'm human. Very good. Um, and do you have a motto in life? Let me open up my room because the other day I was just capturing them. I think. <laughs> so I, I think if I had to pick one out of the list that I I, I captured, um, I think there's one about picking your battles. Like there are so many things that are broken in the world. There are so many things to get angry about. There are so many people who spend time on sort of taking a startup down because they don't like the idea or they think it's stupid. Like uh, I virtually never do that. Like where the topics where I engaged and I make a concision top consist conscious decision that I actually this is the one that I'm going to get my hands dirty and then I I need to spend time on it and energy and it's kind of pointless to bitch about things in passing. Uh, or to tear people down who, if you're not willing to do their job, um, and, uh, and picking your battles and sort of keeping a little bit more focus on where, where you actually get involved and doing it really well. I think that can be applied to all aspects of life, relationships and work. Um, and, uh, the last question, uh, your biggest inspiration tends to be people notably younger than me either in age or in their mindset. Um, so I, it's, it's, it's my own kids, but also like if you are in technology, you, you're always on this sort of, you have to be, to be successful in tech, you need to be always willing to listen to somebody who's 20 years younger than you and, and learn and take their perspective and, and go into conversations with a mindset that your knowledge is already outdated. <laughs> and uh, some people get really pissed off by that, but I, I take energy from that. That's great. And I have to uh, agree with that about, yeah, listening to younger people, because I also feel this generation gap sometimes when, when in this industry. Well, that uh, rounds it up for today. Thank you so much, Sten, for joining us and sharing your experiences, uh, mottos, values, so much uh, knowledge on this podcast. Thank you, Pujara, and thank you, Uchi, for having me. You have been listening to the Antler VC cast with UC Salavera and me, Pooja Parwani. To know more about Antler, our portfolio companies, and our philosophy, visit us at www.antler.co or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook at Antler Global. Thank you for listening.